Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, I'll bring you the latest news, discoveries and stories here from the University of Glasgow's College of Arts and Humanities. Welcome back to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. As ever, it is fantastic to have you here with me today. I'm going to be talking all things fantasy and storytelling with PhD candidate from the Centre for Fantasy and the Fantastic, Emma French. Emma's research is focused on the intertextualities between literary fantasy and the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. You don't need to be a fellow D&D nerd to enjoy this episode. However, if you do want to get out your player's handbook and maybe roll a few dice, wouldn't hurt. But I defy you not to listen to this and completely have the way you think about storytelling and game playing and just the wider fantasy genre challenged. I really enjoyed exploring this one with Emma and it definitely left me with food for thought. Grab some dice and what can I say, but I'm sorry, it's a D&D pun. Roll for episode. My name is Emma French. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Glasgow and a member of the Centre for Fantasy and the Fantastic. My thesis is on the relationship between fantasy literature and Dungeons and Dragons, focusing on the Dungeons and Dragons side of that. Basically, a lot of fantasy literature academics kind of treat D&D as like a derivative of fantasy literature. And I found that was quite a reductive way of thinking about this like space where lots of people are creating narrative. So my thesis is looking at D&D as a site of what I call transformative fantasy, which is basically reader responses to genre and any like creative responses to tropes or conventions that they've seen in the like texts they read, watch or consume and examining how D&D gives them the opportunity to kind of maybe rewrite some fantasy conventions that they might take issue with or revise things or just generally critically discuss things, but in like a playful way. I'm really jealous that you get to research this, but do you want to tell us a little bit about the story behind where your thesis came from like was there a particular moment or text or I don't know episode of Critical Role or something that kind of fed this what where did the seeds come from? Critical Role definitely had a massive part to play I'm not gonna lie there was I did the fantasy literature masters here at Glasgow which introduced me to I'd I'd seen D&D around but I'd never really played it or I'd played it once and then bounced off it because of the group or the vibe or whatever And I watched a lot of Critical Role in my master's year in the way that you do when you're in a full-time master's and there's not as much reading that you were than you were expecting. The speed at which I consumed Critical Role, I was like, this is either a mental illness that I can never speak about again, or maybe there's something like interesting here. And so I think that was definitely one of the like triggers. The other one was I was surprised by how much genre snobbery I encountered, even in like fantasy literature academia. Obviously, it was trying to do the fantasy apology, like defend its field of study by saying we're serious, we're not escapist, we're not uh, infantile or whatever. But it often came at the expense of other parts of the fantasy genre. So D&D was often something that people would be like, I study fantasy, but not like this, not like this thing. And I'm, it just got increasingly frustrating because I think, one... I didn't like genre snobbery anyway. That was the reason I came to do the fantasy masters because I struggled wanting to study the text that I liked earlier on in my like degree history. But also D&D clearly had a huge influence on fantasy as we see it today. Like I don't know how people could ignore that. And I think the more that people tried to ignore that, the angrier I got. That spite fueled me through the funding application process. Although I didn't play much D&D at the time and I mostly watched it it was a really interesting space to talk about lots of the things I was interested in so this like genre snobbery what fantasy looks like today when it's like across all media and not just in a fantasy literature vein and also yeah I really like fandom and fan texts so it was a really good way to bring in that as a side note as well for the listeners who aren't perhaps entirely aware, what actually is D&D? D&D is Dungeons & Dragons. It's a tabletop role-playing game, which is a brand of role-playing game that's basically analogue, right? So it takes place around a tabletop, usually with dice, but not all tabletop RPGs do. They sometimes use different systems. Dungeons & Dragons is a very long-standing uh, tabletop role-playing game. Some people say that it's the first 
tabletop role-playing game, but um, there, it came from kind of wargaming. That was one of its roots. So um, there were definitely these kinds of systems before now. It has like a 50-year history, which is why I study it, because it kind of has evolved alongside fantasy literature in response to fantasy literature. It's a really useful game for me to use for that reason. In terms of general, what is D&D? D&D tends to be a fantasy narrative that can either take place over a couple of hours or a couple of hours every week or every month for years or a month. You are typically playing a fantasy character, although people reskin it for different genres. You typically play as a fantasy character in a group of other fantasy characters who, with the help of a dungeon master or DM, go through a series of, it can be just puzzles and scenarios like combat, dungeon crawling, or if you're more literary minded or in it for the kind of narrative of it all, it might be that this campaign becomes like a story um, and there's lots more like social aspects or a lot more plot driven aspects. It can depend on what you want to play really and what you're interested in. And so it's a game that basically allows you to play as a fantasy hero and that can mean different things for different people. And that's kind of what I like to study. In terms of academic being snobbish towards D&D, is it specifically D&D that you've noticed or does it extend to other role playing games as well? That's a difficult question to answer because I think coming at this from the other side, coming at this from the game study side, I think a lot of role-playing games suffer from the fact that D&D is a very mainstream game that most people when they've heard talk about tabletop role-playing games they kind of have heard of that one and that's seen to be emblematic of the whole genre of tabletop RPGs particularly fantasy ones. I haven't seen much snobbishness directed at other tabletop role-playing systems which actually surprises me now that I think about it because things like Call of Cthulhu do the same thing that D&D was accused of doing which is compiling like literary features of a genre or in this case an author and then condensing them down into a do-it-yourself kind of formula. I haven't seen other tabletop role-playing games treated in the same way in criticism but I I do think that's because D&D is the one that if you're outside the sphere that's the one you've heard of. I've seen similar treatment of video games though I think again because of the like mainstreamness of what types of games a literary scholar knows to take a pot shot at that seems to be the choice that's made I think. Are there any specific texts that D&D tends to get for what a better phrase lumped together with? I think like the major one is Lord of the Rings because that was the one that had a plagiarism scandal I can't give you the exact date but it was definitely in like the first few years there was a cease and desist from the Tolkien estate because of things like hobbits became halflings, ents became treants. Um, they basically did get told that they were, you know, infringing on copyright by the words that they'd chosen in their early um, stages. And I certainly think that, again, I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but my impression is that a lot of early fantasy, when it was being commercialized, so in that kind of 70s period, it is things that were made in the mold of Tolkien, particularly in the United States, because people wanting to capitalize on how much people enjoyed Lord of the Rings and wanted to read more like it. So often, I think the texts of the 1970s, D&D among them, are treated as like ripoffs of Tolkien. <laughs> I mean, they had to change the names, which I think, is, so it is a legitimate criticism to raise against Dungeons and Dragons, that the that early brand of D&D was very influenced by Lord of the Rings and also other texts. Like um, they do cite many other authors in the kind of educational reading Appendix N, which was given as the inspirations for the text. But that's definitely the one that I think sticks out in most people's mind, particularly with things like Halflings. Like it's hard to ignore the clear overlap there. Yeah, I agree. They're very similar. And I remember having a similar thought about that when I started playing and looking at going, that looks suspiciously like a Hobbit. So we've kind of spoken a little bit about D&D in relation to other texts, but obviously you're working with a role-playing game system. So what actually constitutes a text within the context of your research in D&D then? What kind of things are you working with specifically? So for me specifically, I'm looking at pre-recorded actual play texts, which are essentially since the rise of like streaming as a genre of media that people consume 
obviously there was video game let's plays and then people realized how well that would transfer to something like D&D and now D&D actual play which are things like Critical Role, Dimension 20, Black Dice Society, uh, the Adventure Zone podcasts and live streamed videos that record gameplay often it is edited sometimes it's unedited it depends on uh, what your poison is and also what your bandwidth for watching many many hours of tv is so yeah those are the texts i look at because it was a really useful way to talk about D without talking about like my own gameplay which is something that i didn't really want to do and <laughs> um, lots of people have and i think they still do really good scholarship with it but i i was like oh no all of these new texts are here as evidence of what i want to talk about that's great for me so that's the answer, the short answer. In D&D, I think the question of like, what is a text is a lot more complicated. And that is definitely something that I talk about a lot in my research. A lot of people, when they think of D&D as a text, they think of the published rule books. Obviously, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of text to consume. And this is certainly what was being talked about by a lot of the fantasy academics that were treating D&D as a derivative of fantasy literature. They were definitely thinking about these pre-written modules. Um, not all of them are incredibly original or incredibly exciting. I'm not going to come here and defend that particular aspect of D&D because I agree with some of the criticisms that have been leveled against it. But that is only one of the texts in the, in Dungeons and Dragons as a form. In fact, a researcher that I use a lot is my theoretical framework, Jessica Hammer, decided that in role-playing games in general and in tabletop RPGs, there was actually three texts. Those rule books and rule sets and paratexts and modules, all the pre-written stuff, that's the primary text, um, which is like the game system or the scaffolding of a game. That that kind of canon is just the primary text, but the secondary and tertiary texts also exist. The secondary text is the dungeon master's text. So the campaign that the dungeon master envisions which can either be a pre-written module that they may amend according to like what they want to do with it or what their players end up doing with it in that final tertiary text or it can be that they've homebrewed an entire world can include a lot of their original world building that secondary text is essentially anything that the dungeon master has done to either create a story amend a story create a world amend a world etc and then the tertiary text is what the players do when they're given that primary and secondary text together. So when they are given the scenarios presented to them by the DM, anyone who's played D&D knows that it can go off in incredibly unexpected directions incredibly quickly. And so that tertiary text, which Jessica Hammer argued was the final text, as in like the one that once the game has been entirely played and no more amendations can come. Although I don't know if that's quite true because obviously secondary authors react to what their players are doing and like hastily put down the train tracks in front of the train and hope that it doesn't crash. But yeah, so there are three texts that I think that is a good way of thinking of D&D, this primary, secondary and tertiary model. Obviously, if I'm looking at actual play games, then the secondary and tertiary text is what I'm most interested in, especially like these moments where players or dms can come up against something that they don't like either aesthetically or like morally or critically and then they can change it i love that way of thinking about the different texts and don't think there's any player out there who wouldn't be in love with the idea of their finished campaign being the final text i think that's really cool if those are the texts who is the author slash the author authors in this scenario the three authors in that model are the game designers. So Wizards of the Coast designed D&D. They seem to be the authorities often. Or you can go back to like the first authors, Gary Gygax and his friends. That was the friendship group that created D&D. And then secondary authors are the Dungeon Masters or Game Masters or whatever word you want to talk about. I think they're often seen as the main authority because they are often responsible for managing a lot of parts of the story particularly in these games where everything is homebrewed or someone's trying to get incredibly invested in the imaginary world. Often the DM is seen as the source of inspiration for that because they are the one holding it in their head in any given time. Then the players are the tertiary authors. They only, I'm using quotation marks, I realize we're in a podcast. Um, They only control their characters uh, in the sense that their characters are the focal points that they have for this world and they can enact change through that character but I think they do influence the world in other ways so if you've written a certain type of character backstory that might entail creating a part of a a world in conjunction with the secondary author or if you are wanting to play a certain kind of character you might 
create a class or create a version of a class that exists already or a version of a race that exists already and amend those things. So tertiary authors have that power. Often that requires the permission of the DM. But in general, they have authority within the world. Like a dungeon master as an author might have an a version of the narrative that they want to play out but unless they incentivize it heavily or railroad it heavily which uh, is a, co- a colloquial way of saying basically force players onto a certain path regardless of where that player wants to go if they do either of those things then the players might follow exactly what the dm wanted but often that is never the case or they don't get there the way you expected even if you've put them in a series of rooms and they've got no choice but to go through, they're probably going to go through in a very weird and unexpected way. So players have a lot of potential to amend the text on that molecular level and even potentially just take the narrative in an entirely different direction, depending on what they want to do with what they've been given. So are there any particular examples that stand out to you from the texts you're working with yourself? So Critical Role, Dimension 20? Oh, gosh. I guess spoilers for Critical Role and Dimension 20. Two of the examples that I think are really good for kind of showing what I want to talk about are Escape from the Blood Keep, which is a Dimension 20 campaign, which was a parody of Lord of the Rings. So the Blood Keep is um, imagined as like the seat of power in Mordor, essentially, although it's not called Mordor, it's called Gorgar or something. And I think that's a really interesting text because it's clearly reacting against the fantasy literature that D&D was based on by having this Lord of the Rings parody. So the DM is producing subversion through like focusing on the forces of evil within this like Lord of the Rings-esque world. And you're following like parodic kind of doubles for a lot of Lord of the Rings characters. So I think someone plays the Witch King of Angmar and someone plays Shelob. If you've read Lord of the Rings or watched the films, you kind of can recognize a couple of the characters. So the DM was subverting fantasy by changing certain thematic preoccupations and making a lot of jokes about what would it look like to lose the war between good and evil from the evil side. But the final episode of that campaign was designed to be a player versus player combat where the DM as a author thought all of these people are playing evil characters. When I give them the opportunity to like become the next leader of the evil kingdom, they're all going to want to fight each other, you know, take the power for themselves. And that player versus player combat map ended up being repurposed for a siege because all of the players decided that they wanted to work together to put one person on the throne. And they all communally decided that we're evil best friends and we love each other and we want to see each other succeed. And I think one, it's a very perfect example of how players completely jack any dm's expectations and the dm just have to like go along with it otherwise through exerting their will they're gonna take players in a to a place that they're not enjoying you've kind of got to follow what the player's having fun with and like what the players want to do but then it's also like that perfect example of oh if you look at fantasy through a certain transformative lens then you're gonna be like what if the evil faceless monsters were actually like really good people or really good friends or just thrown into evil by circumstance so it created this really good sympathetic reading that the dm did not anticipate even if he kind of set up some of those parameters through the what if we looked at this from the evil side or whatever what if the good guys were the enemy etc i think another pretty solid example which is again spoilers for critical role is the moment where a player character dies very early on in campaign two. It's hard to say if that's a tertiary author decision or not, because it was a result of some bad dice rolls, but it was a player decision to continue that fight and to make an offensive move that eventually caused their player character to pass away. That moment, which the DM didn't anticipate, the players to some extent didn't anticipate either, becomes quite like a shaping moment for the group and its goals as, and that comes along to like reshape the narrative and I think what's really interesting about that example is again the DM reacts to that weight that that player character has been given by bringing that player character back as an antagonist towards the end as the closing denouement of that campaign I don't need to go into any more spoilers than that but if you know the ending of that campaign it obviously has this very big moment where this tiny player decision at the mo- at the beginning becomes like the kind of crowning moment for that entire campaign's narrative tertiary authors shape a lot of what a campaign looks like and what a lot of what the world looks like as well right because that player came up with a backstory that the dm then could create this villain out of 
talking about like character creation and backstories and things that the players are bringing as the tertiary authors I'm just wondering what you've observed just sort of looking at that and the things that maybe players bring in terms of their awareness of the fantasy genre I guess you've mentioned obviously you've got the Lord of the Rings subversion watching Dimension 20 and Critical Role are you noticing players with different levels of knowledge and experience are bringing different things to the table like different preoccupations or interests yeah I definitely anecdotally just from my experience as a player as well I think this journey happens because I think a lot of people's first character is either their kind of id fantasy like favorite character but they're me and hotter than me there's either like a power fantasy or like a this is what I really like about fantasy this is what I've always wanted to be um so your first character is often just what did you like the most what did you find the most fun what did you enjoy the most in the text that you've read what do you want to be (laughs) I'm not gonna make judgments on the actors in critical role and say like I know exactly what you wanted to be when you created this character but I do think you see like a lot of in that first campaign, and I use Critical Role for this a lot because Critical Role has been so long running and also the actors try to market their first campaign as like their first time playing, playing D&D in their home game. I think with Critical Role, those first characters, they might not be power fantasies, but I think they're certainly archetypes. There are some tropes in there that are quite uncritically replicated. If I was to name a couple I feel like the dumb barbarian is something that gets played around within D&D a lot as like a recognizable stereotype of a type of player, although that is still an amazing character. And like the edgelord assassin rogue is, I feel like that's a choice. And the cleric as being the moral heart of the party. And those those are kind of not necessarily like archetypes that aren't unoriginal, but they are things that I think people could recognize from like the first characters they made or what people presume those characters to be if you look at the archetypal tropes. As you get more genre savvy as a player, so as you maybe you become more versed in fantasy but more than anything you become more well versed in mechanics and the game system and so you start to want to mess around with it that might look like min maxing which is the the practice of creating characters that are incredibly powerful in certain areas and incredibly weak in others but that means that they're really good at their jobs or you want to like mess around with things a bit more like you want to go into more unusual racial archetype tieflings or asthma or half orcs and you want to start kind of seeing what the game system can do by either like testing the limits by pushing them as far as possible or you want to like test the boundaries by going into new areas or you want to test the boundaries by subverting them for me that was what I was feeling when I was playing and then I looked at campaign one of critical role and campaign two and campaign two has a lot more of these characters that are trying to test the limits both in terms of their build but also the way that they go into that campaign of kind of refusing the call to action or the call to heroism they instead just want to see where they can go in that world and what they can do and it becomes quite hard to make them into a band of heroes until later on it does seem to me that they are basically becoming more versed in the system that they're in and wanting to see what different types of stories they can tell. And I think that comes with a genre savviness, but also a game system savviness. Unfortunately, campaign three does not perfectly map onto (laughs) that (laughs) trajectory of pattern. But I do think, again, by campaign three, you're seeing people trying to, like, for instance, test morality. So there's a a fey character called Fern whose moral code is quite different from other people's and it's quite hard to work out what her deal actually is which I think is quite an interesting character to bring into a a campaign. I feel like a lot of people are playing with the anti-hero or the line between good and evil in Laudner and Imogen. I don't know if they've become more or less genre savvy. I can't trace that trajectory as easily, but I do think you start with like your power fantasy archetype, the things you recognize, and then like the more you play, the more you want to mess around or see what works well in a game or what doesn't. And that can often result in subversion or at least like a testing of the boundaries, like a pressing against what's possible. You're making me rethink about what my first character was. Mine um, was like a noble elf who had a lot of desire to duel for fame and fortune. And I, I also think back on that character and I'm like, what was okay. I, what was, what was the text there? <laughs> I can't remember. And I don't want to think about it too hard oh. if I learned about myself. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I had a human paladin. I started off as a fight. But anyway, <laughs> so when we were initially chatting, 
you'd mentioned the idea of DMs as master of their craft, but having just had this conversation, I'm kind of wondering if players are the masters of their craft at this point. Yeah, this is a really difficult thing to talk about because I think D&D as a system has often come under fire for having this imbalance of power. The name Dungeon Master implies like a mastery of craft, but also a mastery of the table of having some control that other people don't have. My latest chapter that I've just finished was talking about how Dungeon Masters or DMs and Game Masters, when people watch D&D, they often try and treat them as the major author or the auteur of the world. That authorship model doesn't really work because D&D is incredibly and inherently collaborative. So if you try and like put coalesce too much authority around a single figure, it breaks down. I think Dungeon Masters are certainly a master of what they have to do. I started out as a player. I now am a DM and DMing is so much work. I gained a new appreciation of the game as a player and as a DM from DMing for like a long period of time. I think the amount of management that goes into not just story, not just like people's enjoyment and character development, making making players try to go to the places you want them to go. The carrot and the stick method of like trying to calculate which one will work and that kind of internal manipulation is a lot of work on top of, you know, world building, NPC creation, plot points, all of that stuff. The amount of HR (laughs) DMing involves is insane. The amount of social management that you have to do, even amongst groups of friends that get on really well, is like, it's intense. I think you can see that even in actual play episodes, sometimes trying to manage the balance of who's on the screen and which players are talking the most. I think Dungeon Masters do that really well, in particular in a recorded format, because they're managing a cast of actors and they want to give everyone their spotlight in like a Monster of the Week television filler episode kind of thing. For instance, in Critical Role, something called the Mercer Effect began being talked about, which was this idea that Matthew Mercer was such an amazing DM that he was setting unrealistic expectations for D&D and DMs everywhere, and that everyone expected their Dungeon Masters to be as good as Matthew Mercer because they watched Critical Role and they expected every game to be like that. I think that that's actually quite an inaccurate representation of what Critical Role's strengths are. Matthew Mercer is an amazing Dungeon Master, a very good actor, and thus very good at the aspects of his DMing that he chooses to emphasize. But I think what actual play shows rely on more than anything is everyone around the table gelling well, having a good ensemble cast and having a good cast of players. As a DM, I personally feel like the players determine more of the story. If my players don't want to do something, it doesn't matter how much I want to do it. If I have a villain or Uh, I don't know, a massive piece of character backstory that I want to give someone. It doesn't matter how much I want to give them those things. If they don't go there, then I can't do it. It's not possible. Player relationships, player investment, player enthusiasm, player engagement. These are all the things that actually make a text. And I think if you look at Critical Role, if you look at the players around that table and how they both react to their own stories, but react to other people's stories and how much they care about every character that's in that game. That's kind of what's required to make a really good D&D game in general. I do think players have a lot of, it might not be authorial power in the same way, because if you say that you want to do something in that world and the DM is like, well, in my world, that doesn't happen, then that is a wall that you might come up against. But they have a lot of social power and a lot of control that, is simply, are you having fun? I need to make sure you're having fun because you are in a game that you are playing. So unless my story is fun for you, my story doesn't happen. That power is not to be underestimated, I feel. So that's one of the chapters that you were working on. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other chapters that you're looking at in your thesis? Oh, dreaded question. (laughs) It's really interesting given the shape of this conversation. One of my chapters, the first one that I wrote, was looking at Critical Role and the long-running history of Critical Role as a game to look at this idea of increasing genre savviness of as players play more D&D and become more well-versed in the game system, they also start to question or challenge or play with tropes of fantasy as well. So one example that I looked at was in Critical Role, there's these items called the Vestiges of Power or Vestiges of Divergence, God. I'm such a fake fan, I can't believe I got that name wrong. Um, But the vestiges of divergence are magical items that I think any reader or watcher of fantasy would recognize. They're these quest 
items that give you immense power they evolve with the players and are designed for the players as well in a lot of cases and the first campaign is very vestige heavy they go on a quest to just find all these vestiges because they need to get more powerful it's a pretty generic fantasy plot of go to a place have a confrontation have a character development moment get your prize it's a very formulaic plot not to be mean it's very fun as well but it's quite formulaic and in the second campaign, only one vestige of divergence is found. It's the Star Razor, the reforged sword. And for one thing, that is entirely done through player agency. So the players find a broken sword. One of the players is like, we're in a fantasy game. Here's a broken magical sword. Clearly, we need to buy this sword because it will be important later. So they're using that genre of savviness. And then they continually make choices that enable that sword to be reforged. So again, spoilers for Critical Role, but eventually a player character makes a series of choices that are entirely driven by their own thoughts and feelings. The DM does not incentivize any of those choices. In fact, the player is punished for breaking his like warlock pact, but they then go get metal from a dragon again players choose to do that and players try and make that work for them and then they reforge this vestige of divergence and allow this player character to become a paladin have a new lease on their story and their patron god and so it's a really good example of going from the formulaic this is how you do a fantasy the dm is going to tell you where to go to like i've got agency i know what tropes are here i know what i need to do i need to earn this i need to make these choices so that's one chapter and that's just one case study in that chapter i have a chapter on drow elves because i think it's quite hard to talk about transformative fantasy as in like these creative and subversive responses to fantasy genre convention without talking about what D&D did with race and what people are now trying to use D&D to do with race, how people are trying to subvert the racial coding present within Dungeons and Dragons that Dungeons and Dragons certainly took from fantasy literature as a trend within the literature and the texts of its time, but definitely condensed it and made it even harder to break out of that convention by making it a law of the game system. So it's a really interesting case study for looking at how D&D takes the literary genre, condenses it down into an immutable law, but then players and DMs are like, that law is not as immutable as you think it is. And they try and change it and subvert it again. That transformative response is really useful when looking at race, but it's also a very hard issue within fantasy to ignore when you're talking about transformative works. And then, yes, I have my final chapter on D&D, which is the chapter I just talked about. And then I have a chapter that I will eventually work on, which is about fantasy literature and how fantasy literature and D&D kind of evolved alongside each other. That's like my first chapter, but the last one I'm working on. Again, for listeners who perhaps aren't entirely aware, what, what a drow? The drow are the name given to dark elves, which even the term dark elf needs a lot of exposition. The racial logics of Dungeons and Dragons and elves in general and what elves mean and then what a dark elves mean the drow i use as a case study because they're a race kind of specific to D. there are theories of what the antecedent literary texts were and um, like norse mythology is one that people think but unlike orcs which uh clearly have antecedents in lots of other places most prominently tolkien drow seem to be a kind of creation of D that D has solidified as a racial archetype within fantasy that was then taken out into video games as well like Skyrim or World of Warcraft or whatever the drow or the dark elves I don't know how to succinctly describe them Uh, they are black-skinned elves that live underground in a place called the underdark which is kind of a poisoned underground inhabitation and habitat they are followers of a goddess called Lolth, who is evil. It's like an evil spider goddess who is the direct enemy of the good elven god. They follow an evil heretical goddess and that means that they themselves uh, in earlier editions and iterations of D&D were all evil themselves as well. The ways that you knew that they were evil other than the fact that they had black skin which was unfortunately like a signifier is that they are a matriarchal society in which all men are treated like second-class citizens and for the for the player base that's really not good I mean they're also very mean to those men but this idea of having a matriarchal society was one of the markers of them being a threat 
and they also practice slavery. So one of the things about the drow society is it's very honor bound. It's very stratified into like a strict caste system, but there is this underclass of slaves taken from the surface world, the surface world, again, I'm using air quotes, of racial inferiors or like humans, other elves that the drow hate and the drow take them as slaves to run their kingdom. So they're a bit of a mess of racial coding. Generally, I think the idea of putting your major slave owners as your dark skinned race is a real choice. And I think it is it's done to talk about slavery as an evil crime, like the ultimate, this is the proof that any slaughter of these creatures would be done in self-defense, but they have this narrative of racial superiority. They conduct slavery. Both of these things are white crimes, but they're given to the like dark-skinned elven population. And then you have this a kind of orientalism of female elves in power and being like being sexual agents that's very threatening and thus evil they also have this kind of difficulty of being an entire like underground civilized society where they unlike say orcs which uh, get coded as very like violent or tribalistic or kind of through some very unfortunate statistical choices in the early game system they were also like seen as quite stupid but inherently aggressive is the one that perpetuated into fifth edition D&D. Drow can't easily be dismissed in that se- in the same way because they are incredibly civilized or incredibly intelligent as well, but they are this underground threat, dark-skinned threat. There's like a mess of racial stereotyping going on. But I think certainly this idea of like a orientalized east gets factored in a lot, uh, particularly with the heretical religion and the fear of demon worship, which I think transfers pretty easily from like islamophobia and eastern orientalism so it's a very strange textual artifact if i'm honest how are you seeing dms and players kind of navigating dealing with mechanics and law for races like drows or i suppose if you've got any classes or locations as well the good thing about the fact that the primary text is so terrible is that lots of people have realized this and they're trying to amend it in their like secondary and tertiary authorship. The most obvious way that players tend to subvert the racial coding of drow and that this one predates actual play by a long way and like predates even discussions of race by a long way is if you're given like an evil race of people like blanket default moral alignment of evil you think about what would it be like to be the good person in that group of people or like to try and go against that indoctrination. And this is where we get one of the earliest famous D&D heroes who's called Dritz Duerden. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was uh, the hero of a series of very popular D&D books in like the 1970s, 80s up till today, who was the one good drow in the sense that he was this like very morally good drow who ends up leaving his underdark home to try and be a good person in the surface world. But then he faces a lot of racism for just automatically assuming that because of the way he looks, he will be evil. So like there is a little bit of a discussion there. Unfortunately, that ends up falling into the stereotype of like the exceptional minority of this one person is the exception that proves the rule. Um, And like he can't stay in his home. He doesn't he doesn't fit in there so he is kind of the exception that proves the law of general drow society being evil even if he then encounters racism that's unfair to him and I think a lot of players play with that stereotype the idea of like being from an evil race but not being evil because that's not what they want to play that's not the kind of gameplay they enjoy I think since conversations about racial representation in fantasy and racial coding in fantasy more generally have kind of picked up speed although these discourses have always existed now that they're more mainstream a lot more work is being done to dismantle race at the secondary authorship level of if I'm world building what parts of the world building do I want to keep from the primary text and which parts do I just want to do away with entirely and race is often something that as as a DM I don't perpetuate the racial stereotyping of the primary text but a lot of actual play shows don't make that choice as well so some really Obvious examples of this is like a high profile thing are in Critical Role and the second campaign, which uh, Matthew Mercer has said in interviews, he was really interested in exploring monstrous race or racial coding as a theme and dismantling that. He created the Kryn dynasty, which is like an alternate history for the drow, where they are not 
evil and underground. They are existing on the surface world in a magically created environment that they manage because they're incredibly technologically advanced and they are good. I mean, there are morally bad drow, but they exist on a spectrum rather than just being default evil in one way or another. And that was like a part of campaign two that again became really important because players were interested in it. So the one evil drow that they meet, my favorite character, Essex Lewis, he has evil alignment if you look at the printed materials for critical role but players didn't automatically assume that about him because they don't agree with the racial coding of the text and so they continually just befriended him and were nice to him and never tried to fight him and then they found out he was evil and they forgave him for that and so like they redeem him and he ends up even like the one evil drow of that campaign is not evil for long because he's just met with malicious friendship like (laughs) he doesn't have a choice (laughs) if players are having fun with a thing why would you deny them the thing that they want that's like a really good example of a dungeon master changing things at the higher level of I don't want all of these people to be blanket evil based on the fact that they are of a certain race so I'm going to create a spectrum of existence for all people for every kind of race but then also Sometimes if you're in a certain kind of D&D game, if you encountered a drow character, it would be like a Pokemon battle music begins, kill on sight, you're in combat, and they don't automatically buy into that. Or they do initially in episode 12 when they first encounter like drow elves, they do actually, they enter into combat with them. But then once they have been taken on a character development journey, and they've also become disillusioned with the human side of this conflict that they find themselves in they go to the monstrous side and they become like sympathetic towards them. And again, like they don't automatically kill on sight, which is something that I think D&D did encourage in the past. Um, unfortunately, I don't want to just big up Critical Role because I think other actual play shows do this really well as well. Not another D&D podcast. They had a season where characters were created using the racial system as in like when you create a character in D&D you have to pick a race you have to pick a class these are things that the system doesn't let you change and that can be like a again like a limitation or a thing that you bounce up against I don't want to ignore the fact that race is incredibly encoded in the D&D system but once they created their characters and chose their race at that level race never gets brought up in the actual podcast again that's useful that it's like an audio medium so you don't need to have character art or like racial signifiers in that way and so that's a really interesting way of trying to get rid of race at the secondary and tertiary level once you've made your character and once you've done the like one primary text thing you have to do and then there's things like the black dice society which is a wizards of the coast podcast which features a drow elf played by uh, tanya de pass who's a very influential discusser of race and racial representation in games she created the we need diverse games movement she kind of uses drow as like a almost like own voices representation as in like the closest thing she can make to her own identity in the game as like a queer woman of color she creates like a drow that is a queer woman of color essentially but then because the game itself isn't taking place in the Forgotten Realms, which is like the material plane version of D&D, like the vanilla light, this is the generic fantasy world. Race doesn't factor in. And in fact, it's using game material called lineages, which is one of the ways that D&D have tried to change race. I don't know how effective it was, but like being drow is incredibly inconsequential, whereas like it could be a major obstacle to a lot of players if they wanted to play drow in a certain way. In this case, it's just like, this is the closest thing to me in this fantasy world and I'm having fun with it, uh, but now we're going to move on. Like it's not the obstacle that it would be for Dritz uh, in these early books to be the one good drow in the party. Like it's an interesting counterbalance to that figure. Has researching and playing D&D impacted your relationship with fantasy? That's a really interesting question because I think my relationship with fantasy probably like influenced my interest in D&D and my research rather than the other way around because I think as I said I was already very interested in like transformative responses and like fan reinterpretations of texts but I didn't have any particular text that I really really wanted to do a deep dive on like fan fiction for or I was more interested in this notion of a genre as an amorphous thing and then like how people 
take the structures of that genre or the presumed rules of that genre again I was using air quotes for rules because there are no rules but like these recognizable structures and then changing them or making them fit them or subverting them in their own practice which D&D was perfect for because D&D is this game system that tries to encompass all of fantasy in one like easy to buy 45 handbooks like it gets very difficult after a while very bloated but D&D was really useful for that of like looking at fandom on like a genre level rather than for any specific text but I guess in terms of if playing D&D has changed my relationship to fantasy I think being a DM and like trying to construct your own narrative of like what you find fun and even on a player level like trying to create a character and examining what you find to be fun often people find critical analysis to be incredibly fun like it can be interesting to see what things you want to change or play with or subvert it can also be incredibly revealing to like lay your D&D campaign out and be like oh no this was when I was drawing on this favorite text from when I was 15 and this was when I was drawing on this fandom obsession from my early 20s and this is just the plot of three books I read recently and I really liked it so it can be very interesting to like just examine your own intertexts and like what parts of fantasy you've gone through and wanted to keep and which parts stick out most in your memory and which plot twists you're like god if I could do that for these people I'd feel like I've achieved something I don't think that's a very like intellectual answer but in terms of thinking of the fantasy genre as a series of intertexts that you personally have consumed and what your notion of fantasy is versus what another person's notion of fantasy is that can be incredibly funny try and mix that all together into a narrative that everyone can enjoy it's like a interesting exercise for thinking about genre I guess or thinking about intertextuality you've been both a player and a dm has researching kind of made you lean towards favoring one seat at the table versus another well that's a really interesting question every time I would pick player because it's easier and it's fun and I can switch my brain off like I don't think that that is a particularly again like academic or intellectual answer being a player is often a lot more fun just because you're kind of I don't know you get a lot of main character serotonin and And to be fair, I think it often places you in the position of like being the fan of the text or the reader of the text. So when I am a player, I often have a lot of theories or I'm literally analyzing the the text that's been put in front of me, either from a fandom perspective of this is what I think is going to happen next, or this is a character that I really like, or, oh, what do I think the themes are here? Like that's much easier from the player perspective because that's the closest to being a reader, right? Like it's basically being an a reader that's so immersed that they now have agency in the world. I think DMing has been incredibly useful as a thing that I've done. And I do, I do enjoy it. It does make you appreciate all of the work that goes into scaffolding a text, even if you're not finalizing it. And like all the choices you do have to make of which mechanics am I going to honor? Which parts of the primary text am I going to honor? It also gives you so much appreciation for how much players have control. So much of DMing is just reacting to what the players have done rather than like guiding the players to a place. It's more, oh, you've now made this choice. How do I make that work for you? Like, how do I make that something that isn't either unrewarding or a punishment if they've made a wrong choice or if they've just made a choice that you weren't anticipating? You're like, oh, I now need to reward you for making that choice and show you that that was the right choice to make all along. I don't think it's informed my research so much as it's informed my understanding of how D&D as a game system is very different from like a novel or from even a video game just because of that reactive element of if you have a human referee that human referee can now answer a lot more complex questions or resolve actions that are incredibly complicated it has informed an interest in horror in D&D because I think that's almost like a, a game design problem of how do you make horror scary to begin with but then how do you make that not feel like unrelentingly bleak how do you in the time frame and the medium that you've been given manage the horror campaign Dimension 20 just did a horror campaign and I don't think it was as successful as some of its other campaigns so it's interesting to think about why that is But that's not a research question yet. Maybe that's a research question for the future. (laughs) But in general, I think being at both positions at the table does give you a lot of appreciation for what D&D can do as a medium that other mediums can't. I think the player role, as I said, like you can 
be a lot more passive in your consumption of the text. Do you need to react, but you can also enjoy it like aesthetically or like as a fan. But as a DM, you're kind of your own fan, but also managing everything all of the time, which is a very interesting position to be in. And I don't think many people take that position in other texts unless they become an author, obviously. But then as an author, you can then tell characters what to do eventually, um, whereas that's never an option in D&D. I love what you said about sort of like the players getting, first of all, main character serotonin. I think that's a beautiful phrase. Uh, But I really like how you kind of bring in the idea of them as fans as well. You're occupying this really layered space where you're the tertiary author, but you're a reader. What player hasn't? spoken to other players at the table after the game and gone oh what theories have you got what about this what about this and then you've got that fandom level aspect as well and like as a dm again this was like one of the things that dming gave me an appreciation for is the amount that you kind of live off of other people's investment in your world if you get a message after the session being like i really liked that npc or i really liked this part of the world or i really want to know more about this like if you're a player always tell your dm what you enjoyed but also just tell them that you enjoyed yourself because dms will probably leave a session being very stressed that you didn't but realizing how much having players who are very active readers in your world so are fans essentially like participants in the world at every level is is precisely what a dm kind of needs to thrive because like if i know what my players are fans of or what my players are enjoying that tells me what i need to do in the future to either make the pre-existing narrative that i've got in my mind work or i'll just change the narrative we can do more of that thing if that's what you want to do because dnd is a game enjoyment is always the like final thing that you want to achieve regardless of if you have an epic 70 episode story in your brain having that that fan mentality and that that ultimate did you enjoy yourself did you have fun did you get the serotonin that is the bottom line of a DD game that's at least played for recreation i imagine some actual play shows are trying to be like a magnum opus but as a player myself always coming back to that bottom line of was it fun is something that is defines D&D as a medium for me but is also something that I think a lot of people in the fantasy literature space who spent a long time being like this is very serious it's not infantile it's not escapist I think that might be why they don't like D&D because was it fun it doesn't matter what what the fantasy text did was it fun it could be as serious as possible and address the human condition but was it fun Thanks to Emma for joining me on the podcast today. I would be lying if I said I didn't have some serious research and thesis envy from having had this conversation with her. If you want to keep up to date with Emma's research and everything that she is getting up to, you can follow Emma on et at Dragons. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts and Humanities by following us on social media at U of G Arts Hums or by visiting gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Dr. Sia Jackson. Music is by Coma Media. We'll see you next time.